a forward-looking trade policy, I think, is one that is going to recognize that there's been a lot of shifts going on recently. If we think about where is trade going to be five or 10 years from now, it is going to be much more heavily regional because a lot of the things that were pushing a far-flung, over globalized sort of trade are now, again, coming back to a much more regional trade. And that is better from an American standpoint, from a trade standpoint, because a huge amount of regional trade means that there is more jobs, more technology, more communal working together with respect to research and development within a given region. I agree the advanced developed democracies have a number of things that they need to do together, but we have to have an open architecture to bring others along. There's a number of swing states out there that aren't quite in that camp, but are potentially on the road to being in that camp. I would put Vietnam in that category of swing states. And we don't want to set up a situation where we're forcing people to choose between us and China. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute. Today I'm speaking with Jennifer Hillman and Dan Price. Jennifer is a senior fellow for trade and international political economy at the Council on Foreign Relations, specializing in U.S. trade policy, the law and politics of the World Trade Organization, international organizations, and Brexit. She has had a distinguished career in public service, having served as a member of the WTO appellate body, commissioner at the U.S. International Trade Commission, general counsel and ambassador, chief textiles negotiator at USTR, and legislative director for U.S. Senator Terry Sanford. Dan is co-founder and managing director of Rock Creek Global Advisors, an international economic policy and advisory firm. Previously, Dan served in the administration of George W. Bush as a senior White House official responsible for international trade and investment, development assistance, and the international aspects of financial reform, energy security, and climate change. Dan was a president's personal representative to the G8, the G20 Financial Summit, and the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum. Before his White House service, Dan was a partner with Sidley Austin LLP. I had the privilege of working with Dan when I was Treasury Secretary, and I continue to seek his advice on trade and investment issues. Jennifer, Dan, welcome to today's podcast. It's a pleasure to have you both on, and I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. So let's start with how you came to devote so much of your careers to international economic policy. What inspired you and what were some of your formative experiences in the trade world? Jennifer, let's start with you. Well, I think one of the things that was very formative for me is right out of law school, I spent more than two months traveling in China in the 1980s just as China was opening up to foreigners. So it was travel at a time when everyone was on a bicycle or very, very crowded, very slow trains with no more than a dozen cars to be seen anywhere on the roads of every major city we visited. And then 20 years later, I gave a speech standing on the 27th floor of the Pudong Shangri-La Hotel, which is the east side of, of the river in Shanghai. 
in a place in which there were more than 20 buildings, more than 20 stories tall that had been built in that 20 year period. So I really felt like I saw firsthand what trade and opening up to investment and trade could do for economic growth and for the development of a country. But then I also saw when I sat at the International Trade Commission, sort of the difficulties created, the devastation that some trade could cause for individual companies and workers in the United States as China, again, began to ship based on a lot of subsidies, you know, a huge amount of its overcapacity and overproduction coming into the United States at sort of really low prices. So I saw kind of both sides of that and was always very intrigued and impressed by what has happened over a very short period of time. I remember just standing at that same place and looking at these skyscrapers and then also looking at the old trading houses, you know, and thinking back to their heyday before Mao. You just saw history coming back again. In this one spot where I was making my speech, I had a photo that I had taken 20 years earlier, and the entire Pudong side of Shanghai was a single rice paddy. There was nothing there. And then 20 years later, just an amazing amount of construction and development. Amazing. So, Dan, how did you get started here? My experience, too, began after I graduated from law school. I uh, worked as a lawyer in the State Department in the legal advisor's office. And one of my first assignments was to be sent to The Hague to work at the Iran-U.S. Claims Tribunal, which was a tribunal set up following the Islamic Revolution to resolve claims between U.S. businesses and the U.S. government and the Islamic Republic of Iran. And seeing firsthand how international law could be used to resolve disputes, whether they were expropriations, contract repudiation, sales of military equipment, how international rules could be used really to address problems between countries that were otherwise virtually at war was very impressive to me. Later on in 1990, I had the privilege of working on the uh, U.S.-Soviet trade agreement, normalizing trade relations between the United States and the Soviet Union. And that was an interesting clash of cultures. The Soviets put down a series of purchase orders and expected us to do the same thing. And we said, no, 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 that's not what trade's about. Trade's about agreeing on rules. And I was reminded of the Soviet approach during the Trump administration, given their obsession with the deficit and purchases, et cetera. And I guess the other formative experience was doing technical assistance for the government of Vietnam, culminating in the bilateral trade agreement between the United States and Vietnam in July 2000. So really right out of law school in the early 80s through to today, seeing the power of international negotiations to promote economic development and convey democratic values, transparency, rule of law, accountability. These to me were really the hallmarks of what good trade and investment law could do. Yeah, it's got great, great potential, but it can work both ways as we will talk about a little bit later. Now let's give our audience the big picture. Why should Americans care about trade What is its impact on the U.S. economy? What are the criticisms of of trade that you both think are legitimate? What needs debunking? Dan, over to you. Yeah. Look, the vast majority of consumers live outside the United States. If we want to reach those consumers, we need to export 
And if we want to reach those consumers, we also need to invest in the countries where they're located. There's a great deal of intellectual talent outside the United States. So we need to have access to that talent through joint ventures, through R&D, through a variety of transactions that trade makes possible. Now, I do think that trade has come in for some criticism, some of it legitimate, some of it illegitimate. The fact of the matter is you can vote on trade agreements and you can't vote on technological change. So if there are adjustments in the U.S. workplace occasioned by changes of technology, it's very easy to blame trade, which is not to say that we've done a great job in dealing with the potential downsides of trade on communities. We've had a number of programs such as trade adjustment assistance, which frankly have not succeeded in helping people adjust. So I think, you know, the Biden administration has come in saying we need a foreign policy and a trade policy for the middle class. And I think to the extent that that is a prism through which we look at policies and not a rhetorical prison by which we decide we're you know, not going to do things or not going to negotiate trade agreements, I think that's positive. I think we do need to connect and demonstrate how facilitating trade and investment raises the standard of living, increases incomes, and can result in a fairer distribution of the benefits of globalization. Okay. Jennifer, what would you add to that? Well, again, I'm going to start with your basic question. Why should Americans care about trade? And to me, it's because it touches every American's life. Trade shapes the price and the availability of almost everything we buy, but it also shapes the culture around us. I mean, a recent study by the Peterson Institute found that the average American household gains the equivalent of $10,000 in real disposable income every year from trade. And I think Americans see that both in the sort of quality and, and of everything from and availability of everything from the food that they eat to the size of their televisions to computers and more. And I also think Americans are increasingly understanding that nearly two thirds of everything that we import is a component that goes into the products that are being made in the United States. So again, trade is helping manufacturing, which is again, supporting American jobs. And, and I do think that is becoming clearer. Despite all of the rhetoric in the Trump administration, the most recent polling, for example, would show that nearly three quarters of Americans believe that trade benefits the United States as a whole, that a majority believe that trade, broadly speaking, creates jobs, even as they recognize some of the downsides that Dan has very clearly pointed out. And there I do think it is important to recognize that one of the downsides of trade is that it can exacerbate the income inequality gap. Because when you open up a new market, which is one of the things that trade agreements does, when you create new market access, who walks through that newly opened door are those with capital and those with know-how. And so it is to that extent leaving behind those that don't have that capital or that know-how. And so, again, I would agree with Dan, where we have not done well on trade is to understand how important it is to make sure that those that are not able to take advantage of that market access are not left behind. And here I would also agree with Dan that we simply have not done what many other countries have done. 
if you look, for example, at the OECD data for investment in long-term worker training and development, many of the countries in Europe spend between 2 and 3% of their total GDP on long-term worker training and development. In the United States, we're spending 0.27%. So we are simply not doing the investment to allow our workers to remain competitive and to keep up with the technology changes and the automation changes and the incoming influence of artificial intelligence on down that many other countries are doing more successfully than we are. If I could just jump in here, Hank, to underscore a point that Jennifer's making, which is this. A lot is laid at the feet of trade policy as, oh, that's a failed trade policy, when what we have is a failure of domestic policies, a failure to invest in our infrastructure, a failure to boost R&D, a failure to reinvigorate that virtuous triangle of national labs, universities, and private companies to enhance our competitiveness. And that's where I think we may see a real difference in this administration. Yeah, and I'm gonna jump in also because I can't resist it because you both have talked about automation and technology. And I think the biggest misunderstanding is so much of the dislocations, which really contribute to income disparity and inequity and job loss really should be laid at the feet of technology and automation. And of course, these are positives, they advance society, but we need to give our workers the training and the skills they need to compete in this world. And if you're someone that has lost a job because a factory is closed down, because it's been outdated and it's been displaced by new technologies or automation, it's a distinction without a difference to you, right? Whether it was trade or what it was, it caused you to lose your job. And I think that's the way we need to think about it. So... Let's move on here. And Jennifer, I have a question for you. So we're now living in a world where punitive tariffs have become normalized and even applauded. You know, who would have thunk it, you know, 10 years ago? But anyway, and a lot of this relates to China, but not all of it. How did we get here? A couple things I would note is one is that at a very basic level, the argument that whatever ails America, the decline in infrastructure, the schools are not as good as they used to be, your pay has not gone up as much as you would have liked. Whatever you think is ailing America, the argument that has been made is to blame it on foreign. Blame it on foreign trade, meaning foreign goods or foreign services coming in. Blame it on foreign people. So we're going to you know, back down on immigration, blame it on foreign capital. So we're going to start putting many more controls or, you know, again, examinations under under various processes. But again, the argument has taken hold that you should blame the ills on foreign as opposed to other things that might be going on. Second, I think there was a significant acceptance of former President Trump's claim that if we don't like the behavior of China or others, we will, quote, tax them on this somehow assumption that it is foreigners that pay these tariffs, when, again, all of the information and all of the studies are showing that it is, in fact, Americans that are paying these tariffs, whether it's the American importer paying it directly or the American consumer paying it in the form of higher prices, 
but this myth has grown up that if you don't like the behavior of some other country, you put a tariff on their goods and somehow that is going to create some kind of an incentive. And the third thing that's contributed to this is the fact that the United States has blocked the dispute settlement process at the WTO. So again, all of these unilateral tariffs that the United States is imposing are a violation of our WTO obligations, but we're effectively saying we don't care. We're going to violate the WTO anyway. And that, again, has become a bit of an accepted norm because of an assumption that the WTO will no longer serve as a binding, you know, rules-based trading system that undergirds the whole sort of tariff collecting system. So now let's go to the big enchilada, you know, the big point of conflict. The sweeping new laws and regulations on technology transactions under Trump that President Biden will be implementing. This is a very complicated issue. Dan, can you frame it for our listeners? Sure. Uh, Let me take one step back, because what started out as a kind of trade war, so to speak, with China rapidly evolved into a tech war. I think a number of the points that Jennifer just made about tariffs and complaints about Chinese predatory commercial practices leading to injury to U.S. companies. Trump tried to redress those through the imposition of tariffs. He abusively invoked national security on our allies to boost tariffs. But where this led us with China was from a trade war to a tech war. And let me frame it this way. We now have controls that are on outbound technology. So this is exports going to China. We have controls on outbound investment in Chinese companies, but we also have inbound controls on national security reviews of Chinese investments in the United States. And then we have controls on both. To the great surprise of many, President Biden has allowed to enter into force, it'll come into force on the 22nd of March, uh, the Information and Communication Technology Services Supply Chain Rule, which authorizes the Secretary of Commerce to review any transaction between a US company and a quote, foreign adversary that results in technology ending up on US critical infrastructure. So we have this vast array of controls now aimed at depriving China of U.S. origin technology. Some of it is wildly overshot because there's foreign availability of this technology. And it means if China's not getting it from us, they'll be getting it from somebody else. There is, of course, a legitimate concern here. China is a geopolitical rival. And we do have to have controls over choke point technologies. But it's not going to work if we do it alone. We've got to be working with our allies on both export controls and national security reviews. Otherwise, they will simply be ineffective. And the only ones who will suffer are our own companies. Yeah, for sure. So... Jennifer, what would you like to add on that? 
Well, I, I would certainly completely agree. And I think what you're seeing is the difficulty caused when you erase or try to change the line that had existed for many, many years between economic security on the one hand and national security on the other. And the unfortunate thing about the tariffs that the Trump administration put in on steel and aluminum was it was erasing that line in a way that did not help now to figure out in the technology space where and how do you draw the line between a genuine national security risk versus an economic security issue that is more about protectionism or more about, again, upsetting supply chains rather than focusing on national security. And here that line you know, needs to be drawn, as Dan has said, with others involved in the drawing of the line. This cannot be simply a unilateral U.S. decision about where do we divide up a genuine national security concern. And the problem is because technology can be used for surveillance and for artificial intelligence surveillance and for the gathering and pooling of data to create the artificial intelligence, there are higher levels of national security concerns over technology and trade in technology than there are with respect to trade in goods or other more traditional services. So it's a very real need to figure out where and how do we draw that line. Yeah, I think this is by far the biggest and the most immediate priority to figure this out in the trade area, because the politics are pushing very much toward having what I would say to be, rather than what I believe we need is a high fence around a small yard, you know, looking at the most critically important technologies to instead sequestering so much technology, we end up isolating ourselves and isolating our companies and hurting the American people. And you both have said, you know, that we need to work carefully with our allies here. And one thing it's pretty clear to me is our allies aren't going to look to isolate themselves from some of the most important, fastest growing markets in the world and are not going to want to decouple from China. They're going to want to decouple to, to, to some extent. But so how we do this, and this has to be done very, very carefully and business has to be involved. And not that business should be making the decisions, but they need to be involved. So just a, a key, key issue. Now, while we're on China, so, Jennifer, I'm going to go to you first for this one. So China is forging trade agreements with many other nations, including some of our most important allies. Should the U.S. rejoin the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or even if we should, has that ship already sailed? What hurdles would we need to overcome in order to rejoin uh, the TPP? So I'll start with saying from my perspective, the answer is absolutely yes. The United States should be rejoining the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I think it is extremely important that the United States, again, plant that flag that we are still engaged in and involved with all of those trading partners that are part of the TPP. I mean, you know, that's Japan and Australia and New Zealand and the ASEAN countries. It is particularly important in light of the fact that China, as you said, has just entered into the regional comprehensive economic partnership, RCEP, which includes China, Korea, Japan, and the ASEAN countries. China is clearly doing everything that it can to pull Asia 
generally into a hub with China at its center core. And we need to be providing our allies and friends in Asia with an alternative and with a clear indication that the United States is still in and interested in economic relationships in Asia. And the fastest, easiest, most efficient way to do that would be to rejoin the TPP. Now, again, you cannot do that immediately. I think the Biden administration needs to do a lot of other things first, but it needs to start signaling that it is interested in rejoining the TPP, and it needs to start putting down some markers about what kinds of changes it would need to see in the TPP in order to make it a better agreement, better both in the agreement itself and better from a United States perspective in order to allow the United States to join the TPP. This is going to be a negotiation. The other members of the TPP are not necessarily going to say yes to everything that the United States may be seeking. So it is a process, but to me, the process needs to start by signaling an interest early on in beginning that process. To me, what just it is so hard to think back on, this was in many ways a U.S. idea. And, and I can remember back when I was a treasurer and Dan was in the White House, you know, we, we were pushing that and uh, the Obama administration worked on it. So, Dan, how do you see this playing out? What do you think is the right way forward here? Look, I think it would be great if we would rejoin TPP. And, you know, if you just compare the labor and environment provisions of TPP with the analogous provisions in the agreement that the EU just did with China, you will see the strength and penetration of the TPP provisions versus the European provisions. I mean, on forming independent labor unions in Vietnam, on biodiversity issues, on endangered species issues, on overfishing. I mean, on precisely those metrics that the Biden administration says it wants to emphasize, environment, worker rights, et cetera, the TPP goes farther than any other agreement. So I think they should give it serious consideration. Do I think they're gonna do it? No, but what do I think they should do? I think they should start smaller, but on the front foot, maybe doing a digital trade agreement with a number of countries in Asia. There are some agreements out there already, and I think you, know, you may be familiar with some of them. You know, There's the Japan-US digital trade agreement. There's the good provisions from USMCA. There's an Australia-Singapore digital economy agreement. There's a Singapore-New Zealand-Chile digital economy agreement. I mean, if COVID has shown us anything, it's how dependent and increasingly dependent we are on the digital economy. Look how we are meeting today and organizing this podcast digitally via Zoom, okay? This is an area that does not implicate the alleged harms of other free trade agreements. This is something that would restore U.S. leadership in Asia and again, put us on the front foot to have an agreement facilitating digital trade, enabling trusted data flows, fostering participation in the digital economy, and something that sets up standards to promote U.S. innovation. But we cannot cede the international negotiating space to China and say, we're taking a time out while we get our domestic house in order. We've got to do both, get our domestic house in order and be out there 
on the front foot. Because you're darn right, China's not going to sit there and say, "Okay, we're, we're going to sit back and we're going to <laughs> we're going to stop forging new agreements and wait for the U.S. to get its domestic house in order." Dan, now let's turn to Europe, where you've spent a lot of time focusing on trade issues. Biden recently moved to smooth over trade tensions with the EU by agreeing to suspend duties resulting from the long-standing dispute over Boeing and Airbus, but some festering issues still remain. How should the Biden administration approach trade with Europe? What are some of the potential opportunities and what are some of the potential flashpoints? Sure. I agree, Hank. I think it was wise to suspend the Boeing Airbus duties and give a four-month period for negotiations. Who knows if it will be resolved within that four months? But the only beneficiary of a dispute between Boeing and Airbus is China, is COMAC and AVIC that can just sit by, look at these two Western giants locked in a war with each other and continue developing their own large civil aircraft for an expanding domestic market and international market. So I think we've got to come up with rules defining the relationship between government support and large civil aircraft that would apply not only as between the United States and Europe, but globally. And we've got to induce China to go along with those rules, perhaps by linking access to goods and services to subscribing to those new disciplines on subsidies. Another area we've got to work on with Europe is in the technology space. As is often the case, Europe has raced ahead, whether it's in climate or technology, with legislation, with regulation, and it is crystallizing its own norms and trying to bring those to the rest of the world, whether it's on cross-border data flows, artificial intelligence, or platform regulation and online speech regulation. I think we ought to be working with Europe now, initially through the G7, to have an overarching framework for how we think about technology, which is to say we need to have the equivalent of a financial stability board for tech. And we should start with Europe and the advanced developed democracies. A forum where we discuss principles, where we resolve problems, where we assess risk, where we look horizontally across subject matter area, and where we have agreement on principle, and then we legislate each of us domestically in a sufficiently congruent way, it could justify mutual recognition, thus allowing products and components of one country into the critical infrastructure of another. But I think this is an area where the US and Europe, and frankly, the reason I say G7 is Japan is critical to this, can absolutely lead. Yeah, and, and Dan, the reason I love this idea is, you know, coming back to the digital trade agreements, as important as they are, and they're very important, they're hard to work out. I mean, these, these are tough issues. Technology has moved so fast. So even when we're talking about some of our allies in Asia, of course, uh, Japan and Korea, we, we can deal with those on a principles-based framework. I mean, it's got to be easier and a very important step to agree on principles. So, Absolutely. You need that umbrella agreement. You need that umbrella forum. And then under which you can envision various regional negotiations taking place 
to supplement and implement. So now let's go to the WTO. So Jennifer, you've been a real thought leader here, really on your front foot. And last July, you testified before Congress and made the case that the U.S. urgently needs to reform the World Trade Organizations. Why should this be a priority? And how would you recommend we reboot the WTO? So let me start with the why. And that is because I just think there are areas where you need a global multilateral rules-based system. As much as much can be accomplished in all of these regional agreements, much can be accomplished in the sort of sectoral agreements that Dan is describing in the tech space. There are still places where we need the WTO, but it cannot be done outside of them. And I'll start with, you know, disciplines on subsidies and state-owned enterprises. I mean, if you look across all of the regional agreements, one of the things that they're not able to do is to figure out this issue of how do we sort out what subsidies are permissible, okay, green-lighted versus which ones are to be prohibited or which ones are perceived as creating unfair trade advantages. Secondly, for trade and services, it is very hard to imagine, again, agreements with respect to trade and services that are regional, because that means each country has to regulate their services differently, depending on whether that service is being done by a regional partner or not. And for most governments, that's not very practical to say there's sort of one set of licensing requirements for this group and a different set over there. If you think about digital trade, yes, it would be very helpful to have the exact kind of agreements that Dan is talking about as a regional agreement or to have this umbrella organization. But at the end of the day, the rules and the standards around digital trade, particularly the standards, are going to need to be set at a global level. Otherwise, you really do risk the sort of interoperability of technology. Trade facilitation, again, is another one where if you want one-stop shopping at customs, you want the easiest movement of goods, services, IP rights across all borders, you need a global agreement. You cannot do trade facilitation you know, and all of the things that it makes to just make things run and, and flow. Transparency is, again, another one where you're much better off with a global set of rules. And then again, if you think about the global relationship between standards, whether those are, again, technology standards or food safety standards or what we would call technical barriers to trade standards. Again, you you need those to be done on a global basis, even intellectual property rules. Again, IP, um, intellectual property is going to cross every border. It's not going to be regional. So there certainly are just these areas where you need a global rules-based system to do that. And that means the WTO. And so to me, it is important that we think about how do we get the WTO back on track? There's no question that the WTO is in a state of crisis. It is badly out of balance. It has a sort of rulemaking arm or in essence, an agreement negotiating arm that has basically failed to produce any new agreements except for the trade facilitation agreement in 25 years. So the rulemaking, you know, agreement reaching form of the WTO has simply got to get better. Secondly, you have the kind of executive power of the WTO, which is largely about transparency and notifications and putting out information and making sure, if you will, the trains run on time. And yet you've seen China, for example, not make its notifications on time. So you need to get that executive functioning running. And then lastly is the dispute settlement system, which until the United States killed the WTO's appellate body was perceived as being very, very strong. I mean, some would argue too strong, such that it created a lack of balance. 
for most of the people like me, the way to restore the balance was to lift up the negotiating arm, to lift up the executive arm. The United States, in essence, chose the opposite, which was to push down the dispute settlement system. And to me, we've got to restore that balance. And it is critical. And I, to me, you start with fixing the dispute settlement system. Yeah, this is a huge issue. To me, the WTO is almost a caricature for you know, our inability to update some of the global governance institutions, the Bretton Woods institutions, and we didn't do the hard work. And so before you know, the Trump administration blew up the dispute resolution mechanism, the WTO, I think, had largely failed because they didn't, it didn't change to recognize the changes in the world, right? And, uh, you know, where you could have countries like China and Singapore and South Korea self-declare as developing countries. And where you, you know, when you need to have every country in the, in the world sign on to an agreement, it's pretty hard to get it done. So the question, to me, it's going to be a very, very interesting job how we go about doing this, but because I'm we're sure not going to have the international economic system we want unless we fix the WTO. So huge issue. Dan, anything to add to the WTO? No, not really. I wanted to go back, if I could, to just say two sentences about Europe. Is that possible? Yeah, yeah of course. Okay. okay. You asked about potential flashpoints on Europe. And one of those flashpoints, it seems to me, is this emphasis by Europe on what they call open strategic autonomy. It's not clear to me the extent to which it's open or the extent to which it's strategic, but its hallmarks are an attempt to de-dollarize the European economy, an attempt to chart an independent course politically and economically from the United States, an attempt post-Brexit to repatriate a number of critical functions in capital markets, even if the regulatory infrastructure is not there, and a reaction against perceived colonization by large US tech companies and platforms because Europe itself missed a step in the most recent digital revolution in part because of its attitude towards risk-taking, in part because of bank-centric financing, in part because of the lack of an innate entrepreneurial culture. But how the United States and Europe manage this period where Europe is rightfully feeling a sense of grievance after four years of the Trump administration and preserve the ability to work together to meet true threats, whether those are climate, China, the next pandemic, supply chain resilience, that's a real question. And are they going to be minded to cooperate with the United States? Or are they going to be minded to turn a little bit inward and look at constructing national champions? Yeah. And that's a huge, I mean, President Biden doesn't have any low-hanging fruit here. There's no easy ones. Because at the same time, you know, he needs to work with our allies and restore global cooperation. There are some real fissures and some real economic fissures. 
which uh, really uh, played to China's advantage here in a, a significant way. So there was a big opportunity and a big problem. So you mentioned climate change. I, I want to go to uh, to climate now because you know it's fascinating as people are talking about is trade away to uh, you know changing the trade rules using global trade an effective way to help us achieve our climate objectives. You know, there's so much discussion, and I think rightfully so, about putting a price on carbon, which, you know, I know, Dan, you and I believe that makes the most sense. And so when you talk about putting a price on carbon, then that brings you naturally to what do you do in terms of a border adjustment? And, um, you know, I, I think it's pretty hard to put a price on carbon without having some kind of border adjustment. And so... So talk a little bit about this, about climate change and trade, and what role does trade have to play in helping us deal with this huge risk that all of us, every nation faces, this very major economic risk posed by climate change. So I can start on that because I, sure. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think there is a huge role that the trading system could play to help us in the fight against climate change. And I think you're right. It starts with whether we can use a carbon pricing system as an incentive as well as a way to help um, companies, I mean, domestic companies in terms of competitiveness. So for me, I start with, can you do a carbon pricing system that has border adjustment mechanisms consistent with the WTO rules? My answer is unequivocally yes. And that you're going to need the border adjustments to do two things. One is to create the incentives in other countries to adopt their own carbon pricing system. I mean, if you have high carbon taxes or high carbon pricing mechanisms with an import charge from any country that's exporting to the United States that doesn't have a carbon price, it is going to create a significant incentive for those countries to go ahead and adopt their own pricing mechanisms. So I do think it is both an incentive system and, again, it would protect American companies from unfair competition if they are paying a high carbon price at home and are having to compete with imports that pay no carbon price. Obviously, there's a competitive disadvantage there. It also, to me, could really level the playing field by saying that if goods are coming out of production from a particularly dirty you know, country or a dirty plant that is you know, heavily reliant on coal-fired power or other forms that are creating a huge disincentive, those will pay an even higher import tax coming into, say, the U.S. market if we were to go down this road. So for all of those reasons, I think the answer is yes, you can and should do that. But I think the trading system could do even more. I mean, I think you could start the process of looking at bans or phase outs of fossil fuel subsidies as another way to contribute by the trading system. You could figure out ways to green light. I mean, and to make it very clear that subsidies for green technologies are not to be actionable or objectionable under the trading system. You could finally reach an agreement that has been under negotiation for 20 years over a standard set of environmental goods yeah. and services and take away all of the tariffs and the non-tariff barriers on trade in those. 
And finally, I think you could figure out a way for the trading system to join with financial regulators to figure out a way to agree on a definition of what is a green investment. So again, we're trying to promote investments in what are genuinely green technologies and green infrastructure and not let it just be determined based on a country's sort of national definition of what is um, environmentally acceptable. So I, I think there's a lot that the trading system could do, but I think the number one priority ought to be carbon pricing. Amen. And I want to go big for a minute here because there's all this talk about Paris and, you know, the, the, these voluntary targets that are set by the, by the UN. And of course, those are necessary, they're good, but they're so far from sufficient. And we're not going to come close right now. We're not on a path to come close to meeting the Paris targets. Even if we did, the world would overheat. So it seems to me we need some structure. We need a structure, a governance structure that deals squarely with the incentives that now exist for companies to free wide and, and have some real teeth in it and, and some real incentives to curb carbon emissions. And to me, something that deals with the major economies of the world and, uh, and uh, it, it is a way to go. And I can't think of a better mechanism than, uh, than putting a price on carbon with a border adjustment. And you mentioned the, you know, re reducing the uh, tariffs or eliminating the tariffs on environmental goods and services. And to me, that's the hardest thing to argue against theoretically, but boy, that's been a hard thing to, uh, to get done. And we've had resistance from, from a number of countries, but particularly China on that. So Dan, you and I spent a lot of time on that. What, what do you have to add to this? Yeah, the carbon, any border adjustment mechanism must be predicated on a national regulatory or legislative regime. Yeah. Given the composition of our Senate, yeah. One has to question whether we're going to have that national legislation because that provides the denominator sure. against which the import is measured. And unless we have that national legislative scheme, then a border adjustment mechanism is not WTO legal. And I would say this, to me, the whole game is in transition. The Biden administration has come in saying, let's have a foreign policy for the middle class. Let's have a trade policy for the middle class. Okay, let's have a climate policy for the middle class too. Hank, you made the point earlier. When your plant shuts down, it doesn't matter whether it's technology change or trade or climate regulation. All right, so let's be honest that if we don't get transition right, we're gonna be putting people out of work. And we can't, you know, we can no more say, well, don't worry, if you're put out of work because of climate regulation, you'll become a software code writer, then you can say, oh, if you're put out of work because your job went elsewhere because of a trade agreement, you'll become a solar panel installer, right? So we've gotta get this right and we've gotta, do it with the globe. And when you look at our friends in Japan, South Korea, Singapore, 
they know that region, they want to help that region make the transition from coal, but you can't make that transition without natural gas. And so if Europe and the United States end up being too ideological and put a skull and crossbones over natural gas during the transition, I fear we're not going to get this done. And I fear we're going to have adverse economic impact in the United States, which will erode the political support which presently exists for aggressive action on climate change. So do I think there's a role for trade? Yes, but there's a bigger role for international governance, working with allies and coming up with a workable transition. For sure. And as you point out, there's no way we can have a border adjustment unless we have a, put a price on carbon in the US. And we've got a long ways to go before we do that. Now, I look at it, and I also believe we're clearly going to need more tax revenues to deal with these deficits. And I happen to believe that a consumption tax, a national consumption tax, if structured properly, is one way to deal with that. And to me, a carbon tax would be a way to go there. And so I'd like to see one, even if it comes in at a low level and then rats us up and there's a transition to get there. But as you say, the focus has to be on transition and has to be on restoring our economy right now and, and getting people back working. Now, I would like to finish on an upbeat note. And so I focused, and we focused to some extent about trade, if it's protectionism, trade rules or protectionism can uh, do a lot to hurt our economic competitiveness. So let's just have a few words from each of you in terms of the positive. What can a modern trade policy do to enhance our economic competitiveness? To me, a modern trade policy can address a lot of the things that were the problems with the past trade policy. In other words, I think our past trade policy has done uh, damage in the sense of exacerbating that wealth gap. It has done damage in terms of not taking into account the downsides of trade. A forward-looking trade policy, I think, is one that is going to recognize that there's been a lot of shifts going on recently. If we think about where is trade going to be five or 10 years from now, it is going to be much more heavily regional because a lot of the things that were pushing a far-flung, over-globalized sort of trade are now, again, coming back to a much more regional trade. And that is better from an American standpoint, from a trade standpoint, because a huge amount of regional trade means that there is more jobs, more technology, more communal working together with respect to research and development within a given region. I mean, already today, the imports that we're bringing in from Canada or Mexico have a much higher percent of American content and American jobs connected to them. We have much stronger and more enduring partnerships with Canada and with Mexico than we do with some of our farther flung supply chains. So I think you can see a new world coming in which, again, these regional alliances become very important, where we have much more open trade and much more sharing of technology and intelligence, and you create 
coalitions, if you will, among those that are open, democratically elected, you know, again, working together coalitions to make trade work to help solve the pandemic and the next pandemic and work together to put a high price on carbon so that we work together to create incentives to deal with climate change. So I see a different trading regime, but one that is better able to cope with new technology changes and resilience and redundancy within our supply chains that gives, again, a better chance for all workers to have the ability to compete in this newer, more technology-focused global trading system. I don't disagree with Jennifer's thesis, which is that the next generation of trade and investment rules has to be built around sustainability, resilience, digital economy and technological change. I would have a slightly different view on the sense that I worry a little bit when I hear discussion of regional blocks. I agree the advanced developed democracies have a number of things that they need to do together, but we have to have an open architecture to bring others along. There's a number of swing states out there that aren't quite in that camp, but are potentially on the road to being in that camp. I would put Vietnam in that category of swing states. And we don't want to set up a situation where we're forcing people to choose between us and China. So I think we need to exercise leadership, but through an open architecture that encourages participation by others and that does not measure the merits of a trade or investment agreement solely, solely on how it impacts the U.S. economy. But we've got to look at benefits not only to our economy and to our citizens, but to others as well. You can't have a concept of sustainability, whether that's environmental sustainability or any other kind of sustainability that is continental-wide only. It's global. Yeah, and I think that's been one of the problems with actually even the, the way we're tending to look at the U.S.-China economic relationship today. As security has become a bigger and bigger issue, we're looking through a military lens, right? And with military, it's a win-loss. But economic relationships can be win-win. They are. You know, they have to be mutually beneficial or they don't get done. And so I think that's an important part. Well, I would like to thank you both for today's discussion. Now, more than ever, we need enlightened advocates for a modern day trade policy, because right now, in some ways, your voice is crying in the wilderness. And so we really, really need to rethink trade, not just the policy, but how we communicate it, because this is so critically important to our long-term economic competitiveness. So thank you both. Thank you. Thank you very much. I totally agree. Trade can be a force for good, and we've just all got to work to make sure that it is one. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.